Our passage this morning uh, comes from the book of Colossians, and we'll be looking at Colossians 2, uh, verses 1 through 5. If you will turn there. This is the holy and errant word of God. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Two weeks ago, we looked at Paul there at the end of chapter 1 of the book of Colossians, and you'll remember that he laid out for us his philosophy of ministry there in verses 24 through 29. And here in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, they're really connected to what's preceded it. I think it's an unfortunate kind of chapter division. You know, the chapters and verses are not inspired. They were added much later and find this to be a little bit of an unfortunate break, but what Paul is doing here is that now in these five verses, he is narrowing in, not just talking about his ministry in general and what marks it, but his ministry for these Colossians, his ministry to these Colossians. As we've discussed in previous weeks, there were false teachers that were there in Colossae, and Paul, in part, has written this letter to combat these false teachers, and also to equip these Colossians to stand against the teaching of these false teachers. It's clear that Epaphras, this man that we've heard about a couple of times in the book already and we'll run into again at the end of this book, was a disciple of Paul's, and Epaphras was the one that brought this gospel to the church in Colossae. He had heard it preached by Paul, and then he takes it to Colossae, and he passes it along to these people. And through Epaphras' labors, there's a church that is born there. But that means that Paul has never been among them. He's never preached at this church. They've never heard him. Even as he says here in verse 1, many of them have not even seen him face to face. As we know, it's easy to mischaracterize someone when you haven't seen them face to face and they're just this distant idea. This was true even before Facebook and Twitter. It was true in the first century. So it appears that Paul was being maligned, was being dragged through the mud. So he is informing these Colossians that he indeed cares for them. That, that he knows what is going on with them and that he has a ministry for them and to them. That's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at this passage by examining three things here. Paul's agony, Paul's aspiration, and Paul's aim. His agony, his aspiration, and his aim. 
Paul is not what these false teachers were saying about him. We don't know what it was, but we can guess from the text and from other things that he says in this book that they were probably saying that he didn't know all the truth and that he was a little hard-nosed, he was a little proud, and he was a little stubborn. So Paul here at the very beginning of chapter 2 He lets them know that though he has never met these people in Colossae, he tells them that he struggles on their behalf. Use that same word back up at verse 29 where he said, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul is saying, look, not only is my ministry, do I struggle by God's power to do my ministry, but I struggle by God's power for you, Colossians. Greek word that Paul uses there for struggle is the word agon. In Greek, you, you, you can hear it, agon. It's the word that we get our English word agony from. He agonizes for these Colossian Christians. He, he has an internal struggle, a, a real wrestling for them. Agon, he, he agonizes. Well, how? Well, He uses the same word again in chapter 4. If you'll turn over to 4.12, he says of Epaphras, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling, same word, agon, on your behalf in his prayers. Paul, like Epaphras, is struggling. He's, He's agonizing for these Colossian Christians by praying for them. His agony. I love this about Paul because it shows his heart, his, his pastoral heart. People in the 20th and 21st century, critics of the New Testament and theological liberals, will, will often speak about Paul in ways that maybe these, these Colossian false teachers were that he was hard nosed and that he was arrogant and that he was rude and Here, though, you you see a a picture of Paul's heart. He's never even met these people. And he agonizes for them in prayer. Why? Because they're God's people. They're God's people. Paul loves the church. He loves the people of God. Many of you know this agony that, that Paul speaks of, this kind of inner wrestling concern about someone in the church that is going through a hard time, that is on the prayer list, or that is facing some difficulty, or is trapped in some kind of sin, you know that agony, you find yourself praying for them, you can't fall asleep at night because you're thinking about them and praying for them, or you wake up in the middle of the night and and they are the first thought that goes through your, your half-awake brain, and, and you find that even in the middle of the night that you're, you're praying for people. You're praying for them. There's agony that's attached to it. This is one of the great agonies of loving people because it costs a little something. It surely costs a little sleep. It costs a little energy. It takes a little peace from you. 
it's well worth it. The privilege, it's a joy praying for others. And Paul's not complaining about this burden here. He, he's just informing them that, that he agonizes for them, that he prays for them. If we love, we pray. If we pray, it shows we love. Praying for others to mark our lives, agonizing for them. I want it to mark my life more. I think it was John Piper that I heard say once, I think that's right. He said, The only really good, redeemable thing about Facebook is that it will be a witness against us on that last day that we had plenty of time to pray. It's true. Praying for others provides the greatest outlet for our love of others. And it's the greatest demonstration of our love for others. Why? Because as Paul knows, this is where the great battle is waged. I was sitting with a fellow brother this week, and we were talking about some of the different discouragements and trials and things that have been occurring in his life over the last months. We are saying to one another, reminding ourselves that it is so easy, especially in times of discouragement and trial and, and distress, to, to forget, to, to, to be distracted and forget that we're in the midst of a, a cosmic battle. And none of this is by chance, and none of this is, is a surprise. It's all appointed. It feels, though, like our battle is against flesh and blood as we're going through these things. And, and this is one of the tools of our adversaries. He just wants to distract us a little bit. We forget that this is all part of one great spiritual battle that we're engaged in. Paul is not distracted. He, he hears of the false teaching that's happening in Colossae, he cares and loves these people, so he immediately drops upon his knees and he prays for them. He agonizes for them in prayer. He fights the fight of the faith with them. Because it's a spiritual battle. Our knees is the posture of the soldier of Christ. On our knees is where the greatest spiritual victories are often secured in the Christian life. On our knees is where our love for others proves most beneficial. And so he agonizes for them. Prays. In fact, he says he does so for the church at Laodicea as well. These were two of a few different churches that were there in the Lycus Valley. Paul had had a hand in establishing one or two of them, but the others spread as the word of God spread and people evangelized and shared the gospel like Epaphras did here in Colossae. And Paul says that he is praying for all of them. Paul prays for Christians wherever they are at. He, he's, he's truly a Catholic Christian, a Roman Catholic, Catholic in the, the sense of universal. He, he cares about the whole church, even if it's not one that he started or one that he was part of. He, he's praying for the church at all. He loves the bride of Christ, and so he prays for her. We need more praying Christians like this. What does he pray? 
That was his agony, now his aspiration. He prays that they might reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. We could simply say what he is praying is that they would they would know Christ more fully. Not just in some kind of theoretical way, but he says with full assurance, unwavering. Reminds you of Paul's prayer there in Ephesians 3, doesn't it, that He prays for the church in Ephesus that they would know the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of Christ. We discussed a number of weeks ago, Paul doesn't pray these these small prayers. He often has these big prayers. He, He wants them to know all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of Christ. Is that a prayer that resonates with you? You want to know Christ more fully. You want others to know Christ more fully. Not content with the elemental things of the faith. As the writer of Hebrews says, that you want to leave the elementary doctrine and go on to maturity, graduate to even greater heights in the doctrine of Christ. Because that's his prayer for them. Thinking about this morning while I was sitting in the pew, and we were singing. Had a wonderful couple of weeks, I guess four weeks or so. Uh, three weeks I was teaching the uh, high school and junior high youth a catechism class, and the questions they asked. Uh, they want to know more than the elemental things of Christ. There are a couple of questions for you. Uh, If only Eve had eaten from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not Adam, would only women have fallen and not men? Good question. If God decreed the fall, but Adam could truly choose good or evil, how could he truly choose good if it was decreed? Good question. Or I had VBS this week, teaching the kids that Jesus is fully God, Jesus is fully man, that he is without sin, and yet he becomes sin for us. And a child asked this week, a six-year-old child, raise her hand and say, how could Jesus be fully man? He walked on water. Question. This morning before the service. Little kids had a question for me. Comes right up. If Jesus became sin for us, how is he no longer sin? Question. And no more than the elementals of the faith. Wanting to grow in our depth of knowledge of Christ. Because in Christ, Paul says, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the knowledge of all things is hidden in the creator of all things. The word hidden there may seem a little awkward because Paul just said in in verse 26 of the previous chapter that this mystery which was hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed, Christ. But the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are are not hidden here in the sense of that they're locked up or that they're put away and they're inaccessible, but rather that they're stored in Christ, that they're, they're found in Christ. He's the 
the storehouse or the vault or, or the, the treasure chest of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're in Christ. In His very person. This is why Paul wants them to grow in their knowledge of Christ. Because there is no essential truth outside of Christ. Nothing the Christian needs, nothing the sinner needs is found outside of Christ. God cannot be known in any other way but in Christ. And God cannot be more fully known than in Christ. Christ said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. All wisdom, all knowledge in Christ. Seem like we've heard that maybe over and over in this book. Reading and preaching it rightly, it should feel that way. By my counting, here in verse 3, it's the eighth time already that Paul uses the idea of in Christ in the book of Colossians. But Paul is underscoring the fact that the Christian knows that all that they need is found in Christ and it is to keep them from that fool's errand and that, that, that traipsing after what these false teachers are peddling. You don't need what they're offering. You have Christ. say these false teachers were offering something in addition to Christ. A, a secret knowledge. Beware of this, adding something to Christ. There's two, I think, fundamental errors here in relation to Christ. One is that you take away from Christ. I saw this just this week, a man that some of us are familiar with, a pastor in our circles denied this week that Christ's death upon the cross was necessary for our salvation. Stealing from Christ. Stealing from the work of Christ, the necessity. But there is the equal error of adding to Christ. Any teaching that stems from our thoughts or our ruminations or our discoveries lacks authority and it presumes to know more than can be known in Christ. Now all our knowledge and all our wisdom is in Him. As Paul said in verse 28 of that previous chapter, it's Him we proclaim, it's Christ. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul would say, I decide to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. He'll say in Philippians 2 that He counts everything else as rubbish compared to the knowledge of Christ. Teaching that goes beyond Christ, beyond His person, beyond His truth, beyond His commands, beyond His work, it lacks authority. In fact, we could say that it's no teaching at all if it does not teach Christ because in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Thinking this week that there are at least two gross errors that these, these teachers in Colossae that, that they're making. The one is that they forgot that Teaching in the church, preaching in the church is a derivative authority. It's not one that's vested in the teacher or the preacher. But it's one that comes from Christ. Is from Christ in Christ. And so any authority that the office of preacher has or that the teaching in the church has, it must come from Christ. 
can't be apart from him. You can't be outside of him. We only speak with authority as we speak the truth of Christ. Second, if a preacher or a Christian teacher were to preach or teach something in addition or subtraction from Christ, then, then we're assuming the role of Christ. Because Christ is the teacher. He is the prophet. He is the preacher of the church. It is Christ that teaches us. Dear man, he never ceases to be the prophet. He never ceases to be the teacher of the church. Christ never gives teachers or preachers some gift of knowledge or some gift of wisdom that, that comes separate from Him or that comes apart from Him. If there is truth, it comes by Him and it comes through Him and it comes from Him and it's going to ultimately be, lead back to Him. Because He's the one teaching. It is by God's grace what's happening this morning. That is why you and I are to pay such careful attention we sit under the preached word. Not because Jason of Lopolis has something to say. Because Christ is speaking to his people. The preacher is representing Christ. He speaks Christ's words. And the preacher's words only matter as they sound forth the words of Christ. Truth taken from Christ's word and applied in our midst by His Holy Spirit. I often pray uh, before I enter a pulpit. In the morning of, uh, I often pray a pretty identical prayer, something along the lines of, Lord, I pray that as I preach today that I would fade into the background in people's minds. They would forget I'm there, that you would forget that there is this 40-year-old, balding, stuttering fool before you. Because your mind is so caught up with Christ. You're listening to Christ. You're seeking to hear His word for His people through His servant. You're wanting to hear His command to you. His peace granted to you. His rebuke of you. His encouragement of you. Listening to that voice. Pastors just kind of fade into the background. It's a good thing to pray on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings before you come. Lord, help me to hear your voice. Lee and I early in our marriage got into a rut. Remember, we would walk out of a service and we would get in the car and we would discuss what we liked or didn't like about the service and the preacher and his preaching that day. And it hit us one day that, that we weren't worshipers. We weren't listening for Christ. So we made a rule for time that we left the service, we would only talk about how we had been impacted by the Word. 
how we had heard something that challenged us or encouraged us or that, that stirred us. I wanted to tune our minds again to stop playing the critic and to play the worshiper of God and to hear Christ speaking to His people. Let's pray. telling one of our elders this week that hoped for years, uh, still hope, and I pray for this, that there would be some people that, that would have this kind of agony that Paul has, and that would have this aspiration during our morning services when we return to two in the fall. Think about that, that prayer room that we have back here and think, oh, how wonderful it would be if there were people that would come to one service and then they would go to the other service and they would agonize, that they would pray for the people that are in this service with this aspiration, with, with Paul's aspiration here, that, that, that all of this, that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, that the people in this room would grow in their understanding of Christ, the riches, the fullness of Christ. Pray for them. As Paul is praying for them, to have that higher aspiration to set their mind on Christ, enthroned above, and seek Him. He says in verse 4 that he doesn't want them to be deluded. It is led astray, going down the wrong path by what Paul calls plausible arguments. These Paul's teachers, they were no dummies. They were people that clearly had gifts, had gifts of speaking and oratory and, and even persuasion. And Paul is concerned. He's concerned that these Colossians will be captivated by the speech or the technique or the, the skill of these men in communicating. They'll be caught up with the packaging. And that they won't look at what's inside and, and discern that what they are hearing is something in addition to Christ, something more than Christ, and so it is no Christ at all. No Christian. Let's not be confused by the packaging of the message. We want Christ. It may be attractive on the outside, but we must examine to see whether it is true on the inside. And that has to be something that, oh, we train ourselves at in this day and age because we live in a confused generation. It does not do this well. I remember watching this last political cycle and watching one of the debates one night for one of the two parties. And I watched as the pundits after the debate were discussing who won the debate. And it, I was as discouraged by them as I was the people that were debating. I remember there were three points. One was that this guy really did well because he answered every question quickly. And he talked the most. And then someone else said, well, this candidate did really well because he walked out on the stage strongly. Someone else said, well, this person didn't do very well because... He didn't speak as often. Well, they all might have done better if they hadn't spoke as often, based upon what they were saying. There's nothing there. There was no content. 
Was it good? Was it right? St. Augustine in the Confessions, he, which is kind of his autobiography, uh, really kind of the first autobiography in the Western world. St. Augustine talks about uh, his early days when he was wrestling with what to believe and he fell in love with this false gospel called Manichaeism. And Manichaeism had spread throughout the Mediterranean world and, and Augustine studied it for eight or nine years and he had all kinds of questions. And he would ask his questions, and, and people would say, I don't know the answer, but when Faustus comes, Faustus will explain everything. Faustus was the great teacher of the Manichees, and, and so Augustine just waited and waited for Faustus to make his way through this area, and then all of a sudden there was a day that Faustus was to arrive. Augustine, if he had my language, he would have said, I, the bejeebers are excited. He, he couldn't contain himself. Faustus, this great fountain of wisdom and knowledge and understanding was coming. And so when he got there, Augustine runs down to the forum to hear Faustus. And he meets with Faustus after he has taught and he asks him different questions. And Augustine says, I was greatly impressed by him. But only because of his smoothness of speech. He said he had no wisdom and he had no understanding. He says of his friends, he says, Augustine said, my friends were poor judges. And Augustine said this about Faustus. He said, the content did not seem better for being better presented, nor truer for being skillfully expressed, nor was he wise of soul because he was handsome of face and good at the turn of his speech. Augustine was not confused. By the package. He dug in. Most Christians sit in a pew, and as you turn on your radio, and as you open books, and as you sit in conversation, be confused by the packaging. What is this person saying about Christ? Are they adding to Christ? Are they subtracting from Christ? Because as Paul ascertains here, as he preaches here as he prays here and as Augustine found out in Christ is all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Christ is the one thing that's needed. That is to be our aspiration. Grow in our knowledge of him. Now this is what fascinates me about this text. How does Paul encourage their reaching this aspiration. Remember, Paul is concerned that they're listening to false teachers. He wants them to be of one mind, rooted in the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ. He's concerned that they might wander away from Christ. So how is it that he encourages them? He, how is it that he prays for them that they would grow in this understanding of Christ? Verse 2. He prays that they would be knitted together in love so they might reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of Christ. He's emphasizing that truth and love go together. Knowledge of Christ and loving one another go together. He prays that their hearts would be encouraged, being knit together in love so that they might reach a fuller understanding, a complete understanding and knowledge of Christ. 
In other words, this. The depth of understanding, of our understanding of Christ grows as our hearts are bound together in love. My knowledge of Christ. My depth of understanding of Christ. It's a community project. It's not just me and God. Your understanding of Christ. Your depth of knowledge of Christ is a community project. The community of the church. As we love each other, it causes understanding and knowledge that is deeper and richer and fuller of Christ. How do we make sense of this? Most of us who have spent any time in the church, you've probably experienced this. Something happens in your life, occurs in your life, and all of a sudden you have this thought or you have this realization, I can't do this alone. Maybe it's a death of a parent. It's a wayward child teenager, college student. Maybe it's you are fighting some physical malady that doctors don't have any answer for and aren't sure what to do with. Maybe you lost your job and you're just ashamed. There's some sin that, that has a grip and a hold on you that you have battled and you have fought and, and it doesn't seem to loosen its hold. Maybe you've lost your spouse and you're lonely. You're just discouraged by conflict in the workplace or at home or at church. And you realize you can't do it alone. You need the church. You need God's grace extended to you through God's people. Or maybe you don't even realize it. Maybe it doesn't occur to you, but as people begin to surround you in the church and and they serve you and they love you and they minister to you, you, you receive this grace of Christ through His people to you. As you receive it, you find that you're growing in your knowledge and your understanding of Christ. Him. Peace that, that He extends makes so much more sense. The love that He gives is so much more real to you. The, the joy he, he gives, you, you understand the depths of it more. It also happens in the reverse, doesn't it? That as you and I tend to those in the body of Christ, that as we love them, we find that our own understanding of Christ and knowledge of Christ grows. As I live in unity with one another, with others in the church, and 
extend forgiveness to someone in the church that has hurt me. It teaches me the depths of what it costs Christ. Just to some little more degree, the depths of the cost of His forgiving me of my heinous sin. As you sacrifice for someone your, your time and your energy or, or, or even just physically or, or agonizing like Paul does here in prayer for them, you, you, you begin to understand more fully that this suffering servant, and that he's weeping over Jerusalem, that he weeps over our sin. To understand it, just understand Christ a little more deeply. Costliness. Christ's service just becomes more real to us, fuller, deeper, richer. Because the Spirit is at work and, and He's pressing home the, those truths of, of God's testimony about Christ from the Scriptures to our souls and our minds and our hearts as, as we serve one another based upon this truth. We come to know Him more. Again, let's remind ourselves that Paul agonizes in prayer with this aspiration that these Colossians would be knit together in love so that they might reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of Christ. This is Paul's aspiration and is worth agonizing over. Because it is the most important thing in this life, knowledge of Christ. And if that is true, if knowledge of Christ is the most important thing in this life, and if that is cultivated, if that grows, if that matures in our relationship with one another in the community, it is not sufficient if you walk through those front doors, come in, sit down, walk back out those same doors. Without interacting with the body. Without investing. Without allowing others to invest in you. The pursuit of the knowledge of Christ is insufficient. To be clear, I know that for some of us that need to walk in those doors, sit in the pew and walk out for a time. Been there that, if you've been wounded by the church, or your family has gone through a difficult time in the church, or just in life, and your reserves are very low, so you just need a place to be anonymous for a while, it's a good place for us, you are more than welcome, it's a place just to come in, sit under the preached word, receive some grace, hear the truth of Christ, and walk out and not have to give much only for a season, for a time, because you're robbing your own soul, and you're robbing us. You need us, and we need you. As we serve, and as we are served, we come to know Christ more. Christ community. And new members, when we have our new members class, we 
pray a lot for the people that are going through our new members class. And what I often pray is, Lord, let them join our church if these two things are true. If they can serve us and benefit the body, and if we can serve them, then they will benefit from being part of this body. If not, lead them somewhere where they can and where they will. Because we want to grow in our knowledge of Christ together. That comes by investing in one another. The hymn we'll close with this morning is one of my favorites. I often think of the last stanza of that hymn. We are God's people. It says this. It says, we are a temple, the Spirit's dwelling place, formed in great weakness, a cup to hold God's grace. We die alone, for on its own, each ember loses fire. Yet joined in one, the flame burns on to give warmth and light and to inspire. If I had to rewrite that last line, I would have said something like, yet joined in one, that flame burns on to give warmth and light and burn even higher. It probably doesn't work, John, does it? With the number of syllables. But that's how I would change it. You as a church, URC, you understand this. Let's not lose it. I often tell people when they ask me about URC, I have two things that I say uh, out of the box. I say URC, uh, and I can say this because it has nothing to do with me, but uh, it's long existed in this church. So I say URC is a church that loves the Word of God. They love the truth of Christ, and they want to grow in knowledge of Christ. Love the Word of God. And it is tied together wonderfully with a warm, gracious, hospitable spirit. That makes for a good church. Love the Word of God. Right right mind pursuing Christ. And right heart loving one another. Warm, gracious, hospitable. Those things go hand in hand, Paul is saying. We increase in our knowledge of Christ as we love one another. The knowledge of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And finally, Paul's aim. He agonizes for them in prayer with the aspiration that they might grow in their understanding and knowledge of Christ. So that, he says in verse 5, they might continue to stand in good order and firmness of their faith in Christ. And in fact, he rejoices in the truth that they are. Paul is employing military metaphors here that they would stand firm like, like soldiers, arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder. And he says that, that they don't move from that, that they, they are firm in their faith. They're, they're like a, a military fortress or a bulwark. But all these assaults of the false teachers, they just crash. They just fall on the ground. This may be considered some as kind of a, a child abuse or torture, but when Grayson was two to three years old, I used to uh, ask her to stand on one leg. I loved it. I'm sure she loved it as well. Because she would try and stand on one leg, and she would just she would wobble, and she would totter, and, and she would then try and grab something. And, but when those two legs were were firmly planted on the ground. She was stable. She was fine. We need both. As a church, we are to remain of one mind, the mind set upon the on Christ, and one heart united together in love. Those are our two strong legs to stand upon, one mind and one heart. Love for Christ.
and love for one another. And if we are standing in such a way, then, then Paul's aim, which should be our aim, will be realized that there will always be good order. There will always be a firmness to our faith in, in Christ. We won't be able to be shaken from it. So we're pursuing Christ. We're loving one another. Those two lists. Let's agonize for one another in prayer. Aspire together to know Christ more fully and aim to continue to be a church that stays in good order, holding firmly to our faith in Christ by His grace, in His truth, in the truth of His word, and by our love for one another. It shall be so. Always be so. Let's pray. Lord our God, we're thankful. Thankful for your word. Thankful that in Christ is hidden all wisdom and knowledge and that we need not go seeking after other paths, other areas of revelation, other gurus. But we have in our Savior, our King, our Friend, our Lord, all that we need. All that we need. I want to give him praise with all that we are. In Christ's name we pray.